0: People are gonna see overall what's happening here, but then I want it to be fun for them to look at every individual part and they'll see something that surprises them or something interesting or something new. And I sort of wanted it to be a thing that you had to explore.
1: Hi, everyone, welcome to a new episode of Data Stories. My name is Moritz Stefane and I'm an independent designer of data visualizations. In fact, I work as a self employed truth and beauty operator out of my office here in the countryside in the north of Germany. And usually I record this podcast together with Enrico Bertini. He's a professor at NYU in New York. But unfortunately, today he could not join us. But Sandra Rentgen is my co host. Hi, Sandra.
2: Hi, Moritz. Yes, I'm based in Berlin and I'm an author and visual researcher and I currently lead the design team at Berlin-based Infographics Group and we're doing the show together today. Right, very much looking
1: forward to that. On this podcast, we talk about data visualization, data analysis and generally the role data plays in our lives. And usually we also do that with a guest we invite on the show.
2: Yes, and this time we had the creator of the legendary webcomic XKCD, Randall Munro, on the show. We talked about the relation of cartoons and data visualizations.
1: Also the tension between simplicity and complexity in his work.
2: We asked Randall about his work process.
1: And how to be inventive in this web browser
2: environment. And finally, we touched upon uh, our favorite cartoon by Randall, uh, the favorite map projection piece and what it tells about him.
1: (laughs) Right. So super excited to have him on in a second. But before we start, just a quick note, our podcast is listener supported. That means there are no ads. But that also means if you do enjoy the show, you could consider supporting us. You can do this with recurring payments on patreon.com slash datastories. Or you can send us a one time donation on paypal.me slash datastories. Anyways, let's get started and bring Randall on the show.
2: Hi, Randall. Welcome on the show.
0: Hi, Randall. Great to have you on. Thanks so much for having me. It's wonderful to be here.
2: Thanks very much. Uh, Randall is the mastermind behind the web cartoon series XKCD, and uh, this one really has a legendary status online. Randall, can you tell us a little bit about yourself just to get started?
0: Sure. Um, I uh, did a degree in physics in uh, university, and then uh, after that I worked for a little while on robots at uh, NASA Research Center that was near, uh, near my university. And then uh, while I was doing that, though, I was also posting comics online. And they were really just started off as doodles that I have been drawing in my notebooks. And I scanned them in and put them in a folder on my website so people could look at them. But then people started saying, you know, sending them around to each other. And, li- and I said, oh, if people like these, I can, you know, do some, do, keep doing, uh, keep posting these. Um, I discovered that... When I did comics about uh, scientific topics or, or you know, the, weird, the stuff that I'd been studying in school or that I was working on, people started writing into me to settle arguments that they were having. Like, they would say, me and my friend have been arguing about, you know, could Superman go fast enough to catch this thing, you know, but would it destroy the atmosphere if you have mm-hmm. You know, they would ask these uh, complicated scientific questions, but they would all be saying, you know, we've been arguing over this and we can't settle it, but it's not a, it doesn't seem important enough to bother a real scientist with. And so we thought we'd write to you, <laughs> and I, I could have been a little bit insulted, I guess. But mostly, I would just I would hear the question. And I would say, "Well, no, I want to know the answer too." Yeah. And so I'd sit down and do like six hours of research, Absolutely. and then um, you know get an answer. But they'd like they would have sent me a message on you know an instant messaging program or something. And then I'd go to send it back to them, and oh, they've disconnected. You know, oh,
3: exactly. they're not
0: there anymore. You know, and I, And I would think, well, you know, I did all this work to try to answer this question because I was curious (laughs) Mm -hmm. and I should do something with this, you know. Mm -hmm. And so I put up a call on my website where I asked people to submit their questions and started Mm -hmm. writing up my answers to them. And it turned out to be really fun. I had a lot of fun, like, trying to uh, do research and figure out these these topics and then explain them to people in kind of a fun, simple way.
3: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, And that's what got me started writing books.
1: So you started out as a private data investigator, you could say,
0: right? <laughs> yes, exactly. exactly. PDI. <laughs> um, but for a very good rate, because I didn't charge anything. They would, just, they would just write to me, and then suddenly, even if the thing I had to do that day was really important, I, as, when I hear a really interesting question, I feel like it's sort of like when you get a song stuck in your head and you can't mm-hmm. stop thinking about it. So I could have something really important I had to do that day. But I would drop everything and just work on this question, mm-hmm.
2: and then you're hooked, sort of. And that's probably how you started writing books as well, right? So you've published a few books, and uh, yeah, exactly. So just out is uh, how to absurd scientific advice for common real world problems, which has just appeared in the U.S. and uh, the U.K. and also in Sweden and Netherlands and Germany. So yeah, tell us a little bit about it.
0: Yeah, well, I'm always when I'm someone who, whenever I have a task to do. Um, especially if it's really repetitive um, or, you know, boring or difficult in some way. Um, I am always trying to think of another way I could do it that would that would save me time or effort. Um, and it's sort of a combination of like laziness and extreme industriousness. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll think, okay, this task takes me five minutes, but It's five minutes. That's really boring, and I don't like doing it. So maybe if I if I build this machine or you know do this analysis or write this software, it'll be more difficult to get it working. Mm -hmm. But then once it gets working, I don't have to do the five minute task anymore. And whenever I stop and think about it, I know that my solutions are never. It never actually saves me time. You know, (laughs) Um, like I think that in my you know it feels like in my entire life probably like I've spent you know a hundred times more time. Trying to save time on things that I have actually <laughs> saved. Uh, that you know, if I had just done everything the simple way, I would have. It would have been better. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I really like analyzing when you have an idea that's really strange or you know, really um, like. Well, that wouldn't work, would it? Um, an idea that that seems ridiculous. Um, it's not always easy to tell for sure whether it's ridiculous or not, because mm-hmm. um, there are ideas that seem really great and then turn out not to work for some surprising reason that you wouldn't have anticipated if you didn't think through it carefully. Mm-hmm. And then the other way around. There are some ideas that seem really terrible and then turn out to be really good. Um, I mean, just when I learned where antibiotics come from, it was like you grow mold and then you use that mold and if you have a cut, yeah. you can smear the mold on a cut and it gets better. <laughs> yeah, And that seems obviously like a bad idea to me. Um, <laughs> But then, then I have I, I also love their examples of, you know, ideas that sounded really good and mm-hmm. then turned out to have some consequence that we didn't think about, like, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, adding lead to gasoline seemed like a good idea because it would make the engines run better. It would reduce wear and tear. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would make them. But then uh, it turned out to poison the atmosphere. Oh, I see. Or the the chlor- the stuff that we added to coolants for for refrigeration and aerosols and stuff. Um, the chlorofluorocarbons; those turned out to destroy the ozone layer. Mm-hmm. And it was that—that that was one guy who had both those ideas. They both sounded really great. It was the same person, and then they both ended up like almost destroying the planet.
2: <laughs> yeah, but what was really nice looking into the book and reading these things is like this exact thing that you uh, that you just keep on going with a question. You know, you just sort of. I think many people would just sort of stop rather early when they think like it sounds absurd, why should I even bother to investigate the thing? And what I really liked was like you just kept on going and just turned it into this uh, complete investigation that really sort of figured everything, every aspect of the question.
0: Well the nice thing about coming up with weird solutions the thing is often you'll have a solution Um, that might solve the original problem, but it'll create a whole bunch of new problems. (laughs) And then I have all these new problems to solve. So I solve them, and the first one of those, I try to solve, oh, you know, this has opened up some new questions to Mm -hmm. answer. And so sometimes if I come up with an idea and it is uh, actually kind of easy to solve, or someone writes in and they ask me a question and says, oh, this is is actually kind of trivial. It's very simple, you know. Mm -hmm. I'll answer it, but then I'll think, okay, well... Where do I go from there? You know, does this open up new questions that I want to answer?
1: Mm. Yeah, Yeah, but that's super interesting. Like this infinite rabbit holing that you really seem to be into, like coming from a simple starting point and then exploring like really complex topics in all their complexity. But at the same time, cartoons really need to be really simple, right? And, And really on point in order to work. Is there like a tension for you or how do you bring these two worlds together like this endless complexities and, and the simple story you want to tell.
0: Yeah, I think the way I think about it is that um, I love I love going on, you know, exploring, like you described, these endless rabbit holes. Uh, uh, and then, but then I'll find something that's really interesting to me, but it's partly interesting because I explored all these infinite rabbit holes. Mm-hmm. And I think I try to be very conscious of the fact that... Um, that the you know other people who have not gone on this research journey with me might not you know like have the context to understand or to you know care about what I'm talking about, and so I'm always thinking, okay, I've learned something really cool here, but how do I strip down to you know cut away the 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 parts that aren't as interesting, and add in all of the context people will need to understand it. Mm-hmm. Um, but as you know, in just a very, very, very limited space, um, and so I don't know. One one thing I always try to do is is when I'm um, when I'm writing for 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 other people, you know, even if even if talking to a technical audience, or you know, if you're if you're you know writing something for one of your peers in science, just like writing with a general audience, is I always try to keep in mind nobody else. Um, People, people are all. People are very smart, um, but they're busy. You know, they have their own things that they're thinking about. You only get a very small amount of their attention. Mm-hmm. So sometimes people who talk about science will get really kind of condescending about toward other people, where they say, "Oh, people just aren't smart. They just don't read anymore. They don't pay <laughs> attention." And, mm-hmm. and I always that makes me really mad mm-hmm. because it's you know, I, I, and I and I'm not I'm not usually an upset person, but I really don't like because because it's really kind of arrogant to assume that you know, people are thinking about other things. Maybe they're important, maybe they're not, maybe it's none of your business, you know? Mm-hmm. So like when I see a scientist who's saying like, people just need, they just need to learn all these words and learn all this stuff and then, <laughs> and then they'll understand my important work and I'll be like, look, your work is not that important, you know? Like right. maybe yeah. it is, but you have to convince people, you know? And so, and so I always try to remember that people are really busy and people have not, they, they are smart, but they don't. They haven't read, you know, all of the same things that I've read. They've read different things. Yeah,
1: it's so funny. You're a cartoonist and a writer and a physicist, but to me, as a data visualization practitioner, this resonates, you know, so much because it's yeah. the same challenge. Like, how can we, on the one hand, explore a complex space really sufficiently to, to make yeah. a good statement, but then also for somebody new to the space, how can we be a good, let's say, tour guide almost, you know, and show the the interesting spots of what we found in a good order almost, yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly. You have to and and so I always try to try to share context with people. But I try, I never think about it like, oh, people aren't going to understand this, so I've got to tell them about this so that they can understand this. You know, mm-hmm. I think like I have to give the person the context um but I have to make that interesting too. You know, I have to I have to show them what, you know, why they should and why they should care about this. And you know, and I don't like telling people like you should care about this because that that doesn't really I don't know maybe you shouldn't, you know? people,
2: <laughs> It's just you think it's interesting, yeah. and that's how you want to make it yeah, way.: to make so it.: fun. I, I
0: always try to think, what do, what do I think is interesting mm-hmm. here and then try to communicate that to people? Mm-hmm. And if they don't think it's interesting, that's okay. you know People sometimes ask me like, "Well, you studied physics. How do you get more people, how do we get more kids to study physics you know, or study science? And like that seems very, very like noble to me, but the truth is like... I don't know whether more kids should study physics, you know? Because, because like I say, okay, yes, you know, science is really interesting and it's very important. But the, I always sort of wonder what they mean when they say more kids should study this. They don't say like, instead of this. But is there some other field that they're trying to take kids away from? Yeah. And, it, you know, is it sort of like a way to insult those other fields? Yeah. Like, And so I, I, try to, I try to, I don't say, you know, you should learn physics, you should learn this, you should study this. What I say is, I studied these things, and I think they're really exciting, and I'm going to try to show you why. Mm-hmm. But you know, I hope someone you know someone who studies um, you know the the German literature or botany or you know public speaking or international relations like like they should have just as good a shot as me at people. <laughs> <laughs>
2: So why we are really fans of of your work of XKCD and of the books is like we love this combination of like the the comic strip uh, storytelling and and then what we of course also really love is your, uh you know your your uh, humoristic treatment of vis methods or just playing around with uh, vis tropes and data visualizations and and scientific ways of showing things and, and visualizing things. So what we say is your uh relation to data or to, you know visualizing in general? Have you worked with that um, a lot as a scientist? What was it? What was its role in your training, for instance?
0: You know, I think um, often when I did my science degree, uh, uh, you know, the, the field, I think the, the whole idea of data visualization has evolved a lot, you know, in recent years as more and more people have gotten excited, you know, have realized it's a field that... And I think it's something that we've been doing all along, but um, maybe recently it's become more, it's like we have a word for it now. Um, But when I would do my degree in, in, you know, when I was in, in university classes, they would write uh, the, like the professors would like draw stuff on the board to try to show and I remember always thinking like the drawings would be really confusing And I sort of thought that maybe physics people who do physics degree should have to take one art class not to learn to draw Well, you know, you can draw stick figures, but just to learn to draw a cube in three dimensions mm-hmm. Because we're always drawing cubes in physics, but like they, the lines would go in different directions and it would be a jumble you know? <laughs> um and so, so, but for me, usually, they wouldn't include much in the way of visualizations. But, that, but to me, it would help me understand things. Mm-hmm. So they would be, you know, describing, here are all these different quantities. And then I would have my notebook, and I would say, I can't make sense of this. And I would try to draw out a little chart showing how the parts connect, you know. Um, and, and a lot of my visualizations that I draw in my comics sort of started out as my own notes mm-hmm. trying to understand a subject myself. Uh, And then I realized, wow, this has sort of grown and it looks kind of cool. And I could make this, you know, an introduction to this subject or or Mm -hmm. to explain something. But I find it's helpful for understanding in the first place. Um, We didn't have very much of it in physics and in my classes. But when I was a kid, um, one thing my parents would put up... You know, when you get a magazine, like uh, Newsweek for, for us uh, would, would do these a lot, there would be like a fold-out page mm-hmm. that would diagram, you know, some big news event that had happened, like a rescue at sea, or a building had collapsed, or, you know, there was um, some new facility that was built that, like, broadcast something, and they would have a diagram in the, in the Newsweek with all the parts labeled, or they would show a timeline of how things happened or, or something. And they would be really pretty, you know, and it, someone put a lot of work into this. And, my, and my, my parents, we didn't have a lot of, like, we didn't buy fancy art or posters, but my parents would unfold these things from the magazines and cut them out and stick them on the wall in my I room could. or, you know, in the hallways. Nice. And I would, and I don't know, I, I honestly don't know if it was there for the kids or if my, you know, my mom mm-hmm. just liked these posters, um, but I would spend hours looking at them, you know, wow. going over them and say, oh, now I understand why this building has this part here. It's to mm-hmm. hold this up. Wow. Because you need to get from here to here, you know, and yeah. it would, and I would spend forever looking at those. And I always found those things really, uh, uh, I like the kind of diagrams that you can look at and it just feels mm-hmm. like you're getting smarter the more you stare at it, you know, and yeah. you, you're just, you keep looking and you keep seeing more little details that are interesting.
2: Yeah. It's also nice to have this idea that you actually read them, right? It's not like you look at them and like, you know, uh, at a glance, everything's clear. But you, like as you said, you sometimes have to spend hours with it and then read it, and then you know, as a process, things become clear.
0: Yeah, a lot of the time when they do visualizations, they talk about, um, you know, when, when you'll see them make a chart. You're like, you want it to be obvious right away. You know what point that what point it's making. You know, you want to remove stuff that's di- distracting. Um, and I think that that's true. Um, you you know, you always want to remove anything that's a distraction from your point. Um, but when I grew up, I read, uh, we also had these books that were, um, they were in the U.S., they were Where's Waldo, and then I think the international editions were Where's Wally, uh, but they were, it would be a, a, a picture of a crowd, but everyone would be doing something in the crowd, you know, and, and you had to find the one character with the little striped hat and the cane. And so the kids, you could spend hours just looking over the page, trying to find the hidden character somewhere. And... Those I loved those books. I never really cared about finding the character, but every figure in them was doing something interesting, you know? <laughs> awesome. There'd be someone who was fishing, and someone who was stuck inside a hole, and someone who was climbing a thing where they weren't supposed to, and there'd be two people fighting with unusual swords, and, you know? And, and, but it had no visual organization. It was like the opposite of an easy-to-read chart. Mm-hmm. Um, but that itself is also really fun because you know that wherever you look, you're going to see something interesting. And it makes you want to search mm-hmm. the whole thing. Yeah. And so I think sometimes my charts, I'll arrange them. Um, you know, I'll do when I did uh, my the book Thing Explainer, which was full of uh, complicated diagrams. I thought about it, I, I almost thought about it like, people are going to see overall what's happening here. Mm-hmm. But then I want it to be fun for them to look at every individual part and they'll see something that surprises them or something interesting or something new. And I sort of wanted it to be a thing that you had to explore, you know.
2: Nice. Very nice.
1: Yeah. I think that's that's very true of your fabulous movie narrative charts. I think it's one of my favorite like data visualizations ever. Thank you. uh, Where you show basically the plot development, like what the characters Mm -hmm. do in a movie. And it's a bit like a big, like a project Gantt chart, almost like times running left to right. And you have different rows or different lines, let's say, for the characters. But the clever like thing you bring in is like the proximity of the lines shows who's teaming up with whom or who's who's with whom at a given point in time. Mm -hmm. And that's such such a clever twist because it shows you the 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 whole movie structure at one glance. And exactly you can like zoom into the chart and go like, oh wow, this is exactly the point where the Fellowship of the Ring meets for the first time with Gandalf and so on. And and Mm -hmm. it's you use it to make a joke about Prime and 12 angry men, I guess. Or that's at least one of the purposes but then it's a really honest and downright really inventive and and very good data visualization that you created first to set up that joke i think that's that's quite remarkable <laughs> it's
2: pretty awesome yeah and you can also feel how there's a lot of research involved in that
0: yes well i was um i you know i was sort of embarrassed i did uh i did the chart of the lord of the rings uh uh movies that's the biggest part of it right and I am. I am a little bit embarrassed, but also proud to say. I remember I sat down and I drew out the chart over a weekend. You know, um, on it was it was on three huge sheets of paper, mm-hmm. and and I didn't. I think I did the entire chart without checking any references <laughs> except maybe once because I had seen those movies so many times. So it was um, all in your head. It was you like no just, research. You had the research. And I, and then at the end I and I had I had like gotten the movies on my computer and I was ready to go back and check, you know, scenes and remember who was where, but I was sort of like, "Oh, I don't actually need to do that. I've just <laughs> I, I've watched but it's like 12 hours of movies and so I can't believe it. I've watched them multiple times. That's a lot of hours. But What's interesting about those charts is I actually, that's one one of my first ideas that I had um, before I did comics, when I was a little kid even, I remember thinking, um, and I, I had this idea about Star Wars when I was watching it for the first time. So I must have been, you know, like 10 years old or something. And I remember thinking like, oh, these characters come together and break apart and, you know, go in these different things. And I thought it would be really neat to see the movie stretched out, mm-hmm. and just showed the lines of the characters connecting. I had that idea when I was a little kid, um, oh, wow. you know. But then, and then as I got, I, I, but I, you know, I just sort of had a vague idea. And then as I got older, I remember, you know, I would rewatch the movies and think, like, what would that look like, you know? And and I was, and I thought, what you need is a computer system. I, I was thinking, what I want is, I want to write software, mm-hmm. you know, that would that would track the script. Or track the um, you know the the frames of the movie, you know, but I thought it would have to be based on the script because <laughs> facial recognition wasn't there, yeah, but text recognition wasn't very good either, so I knew this would be an almost impossible project to write something that could track who's together and the timeline of the movie and plot it out on a chart. Um, but I thought it would be really interesting to build, you know, but even knowing the technology was going to get better, I knew that was a really hard thing to build, mm-hmm. and it was certainly beyond me. Mm-hmm. And so I just thought, like, oh, that would be really cool to make someday, but tech- I'm not going to be able to do it, you know, probably ever, but certainly not for a long time until, until there is better software out there. And it was funny because I thought that for like 10, I remember there was like 10 years where I thought that would be really cool, but there's just no way to do it. <laughs> and then I realized that um, a movie is long, but it's not that long. Mm. You know, like y- y- sure, you could get a computer to do it, and it might take you twenty years of development. But like just sitting down and writing out the plot of Star Wars scene by scene doesn't take that long. No. It takes a long time from the point of view of someone who might be very busy and has something better to do. But like if it's just a few days, you know,
2: against the background of having to wait another twenty years for technological exactly. development. Yeah, that's so right. So one,
0: one thing that has really surprised me about doing these advanced, these data visualizations that are sometimes very elaborate is um especially if you have a background in computing it is it is easy to underestimate how much you can get done by just doing a thing very repetitively
3: mm-hmm. over
0: and over mm-hmm. so like my most i think the co- the chart that i drew that has the most the most complicated chart in a very literal sense that had the most data points in it was i did a chart of money where it was amounts of money uh, and the money is represented by little squares. And this chart, and it shows, you know, compares the budgets of different, you know, companies and different parts of the government and different projects and different consumer products and you everything. And it, and it was just a huge mural of different amounts of money. And when we printed it, we had to print a billboard sized version just so you could read the small <laughs> labels. Wow. Um, and I think it had, I didn't count exactly, but I know that the, the uh, you know, I first built a, a data sheet, you know, a database, uh, a couple of spreadsheets of different data that went into it. And it was something in the, in the neighborhood of, it was a, about 20,000 or 2,000 or 2,500 data points. Wow. And each one had to be laid out on the chart. Mm-hmm. And, and people who saw it asked me, you know, okay, well, what visualization software did I use? How did I make it lay it out like that? Um and the answer was that I just did it by hand in ImageJ. <laughs> um and it was but you know 2000 data points each one does take a little while. You have to like figure out what shape should it be, how to align it. You know, it seems like that would be an infinitely, you know, long task. Um but if you have 2000 data points and each one you spend 5 or 10 seconds, you know, uh, arranging it and placing it and everything that's still only a few weeks, mm. you know. It's it, which is a long time, but you know, getting software to work can take a lot longer than that. Mm. And so, I think that, and it's sort of in my head. I think of that as the limit of of a data visualization by hand can have more than about two thousand data points. I see, um, but but you, that's a lot. That's more than you can fit in in a you know a poster almost. Yeah. Uh, and so a lot of my charts are are just by hand going over the data because you have to do that anyway. Yeah. you know, if you're gonna have a computer do it. You're still going to have to look at each data point that goes yeah. in and make sure it's correct, make sure it's what you wanted to put there, yeah. you know, make sure it makes sense. Otherwise, you'll have a chart that has all this stuff in it that isn't right.
3: Yeah.
2: Uh, yeah, that's a very cool uh, thing because we're so used to trying to automate things and trying to make like, you know, have software that, you know, helps us do things. So it's really, really cool to hear that you're uh, doing a lot of that by hand. So let's look into your process a little bit. Uh, how do you go about like doing these comics and also just really drawing them? Are you actually working on paper? Do you work uh, digitally? How do you get these things together? Um.
0: I drew on paper. My comics were on paper for a very long time. Um, you know, sort of the first half of uh, or more. Um, but uh but over time I started, you know, I would always edit them on the computer uh to get them, you know, just to make it so that it didn't look like a a a blurry photo or, you know, scan and, you know, with all of the 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 crud that makes it hard to read. And so and I would edit them on the computer, and I would use a tablet, and I would sometimes redraw parts of it. You know, I would re-edit, you know, put in new text, um, fit things together, fix errors, and over time, I just did more and more of the editing on the computer. Until at some point, I said, "Okay, you know, I may as well just do the first draft on the computer." Um, and I started drawing, and I'll use one of those big drawing tablets that illustrators use. Um, and and it felt a little bit a little bit silly. Part of I resisted it for a while to get one of those fancy tablets. If I'm just drawing stick figures, yeah. I thought like I don't I don't need that. I, that's, yeah, I, I can't I can't justify yeah. that. But once I got it, I found oh this is much easier. Yeah. and it lets me do bigger and you know more sort of more interesting things. Um, and it was actually when I did the chart the movie narratives chart mm-hmm. um, that the frustration of doing that on paper was part of what. Um, Pushed me to think I should get a tablet to work on because it had so many different complicated parts. And if I realized partway through I've been inking this, but I need to redo this, I would have to get another sheet of paper, redo the whole thing on there, trace over it, scan that, you know. And I thought I should really get—I yeah. should get a, a digital thing where I can draw this onto a screen.
2: I see. So you started out analog uh, on paper, and then sort of streamlined the process into becoming fully digital. Yeah. And, uh...
0: Yeah, and I think a lot of—but you know, I know—I I know everyone who I know uses different. Everyone who I know who does drawing or art or cartoons, everyone has a very, very different process. Mm-hmm. Some people do first drafts on paper, take a photo. Trace over in an image editor. Some people draw it in vectors editors. Everyone uses different software. Nobody I know could use anyone else's system. <laughs> it's like everyone has developed their own um,
2: their own very personal process, right? Yeah,
0: it's like using someone else's uh, 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 drawers, their laundry, you know, socks and underwear drawers, like. You know
2: <laughs> It's a nice. It's like uh, like I've tried comparison. using
0: someone else's computer just to say, oh here, can you add this in, you know, on mine mm-hmm. or I'll try to I'll ask yeah. them to add something on mine. And it's like they'll pick up the stylus or the mouse and I then know. click and like the whole image disappears. And you're like, yeah. what did you do to this? How does this even work? And they're like, no, 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 no. It makes more sense the way I do it, you know.
2: Yeah, yeah. Everyone personalizes their processes. Yeah, so when people so much, ask me so-
0: when people ask me what should I use to edit these? And I say, "Oh, I don't know. Whatever you can make work, you know i i I do most of my editing using um, Adobe Photoshop, mm-hmm. but it's just because I learned to use it when I was younger, and now I know how to do all kinds of very like complicated stuff that would probably be easier in some other piece of software mm-hmm. you know and and I know I, but but it's just the one that I learned to use um and so now I know how to do a bunch of things in it quickly.
1: yeah,
2: but, very cool, yeah,
1: it's sort of funny because, yeah, as you say like. I think your work looks like a lot. It's it's made on paper, and certainly in this tradition of the 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 newspaper cartoon, you know, like like Peanuts or Calvin and Hobbes and mm-hmm. so on. And at the same time, I think you're one of these really native web comics, really that that became big on the web and takes this old paper tradition and then puts it into the browser. And I I also love how you play with like this context. So. Um, fans of your work will know that the tooltip of each of your graphics contains usually another joke or a commentary of yours or a new twist on what we've seen. So it has become an integral part of of your work. I would say is the alt tag
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> or the alt property, which is sort of funny. yes, yeah. I try and I try never to assume. It's sort of like the thing we were talking about, um, like how I try not to assume that people know, you know. Uh, everything about a field that I'm talking about or something, Um, I try not to I try to assume that most people still don't you know, don't read the little mouse over text you know, maybe they have the comic you know uh, uh, they have a script that downloads the comic and sends the image to them on as a text message and it doesn't include the alt text, you know, or something so I try to um, uh, I only ever write the alt text image after I finish the comic I never try to make that the punchline you know, but the um the the mouseover you know that the 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 mouseover text it's it's sort of nice because people will say that they've read my they re- they said they found my comic and they read through you know five hundred archived comics. And then they noticed the alt text. And then they had to go back and reread the 500 comics. And, and when I, I'm thinking about it, that probably helps them remember it better. Yeah. You know, yeah. You've know, you read this comic twice now. So it's, it's almost like a secret uh, strategy to get people yeah. to, 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 to read my comics more. Yeah. Perfect.
2: It's like you watching movies over and over again. Exactly. So, so people really take in the, the content and, and the jokes. So that's really nice. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, this this Trojan horse strategy is interesting. I think it's a it's part of your work, anyways, right? Is this um, I think you tackle big topics as well, like like politics, climate change, cancer, mm-hmm. and I think you you manage to somehow tackle them in this in this cartoon format or, or in this data investigation format. Um, what do you think is the role comics can play, or web comics, in in, in talking about these big questions? Is it like the the court Chester's role, or can you uh, do you see this actually as a as a form of of journalism uh, or an alternative way to educate people? What's your take there?
0: Um, I don't know. I think I think um, anyone you know there are, there are things that that you know I feel an obligation, like I feel guilt, you know like pressure, you know, I want to talk about. Um, and especially any anyone who does anything with science um, and talking about science or 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 teaching it or whatever feels stress about um, about w- trying to understand what what has gone wrong with uh, uh, climate change, because especially in the United States, the public view is so different from the scientific view. The public thinks, "Oh, maybe this is happening, you know, but we aren't sure how bad, and we aren't sure what. You know, maybe humans aren't causing it, maybe they're not. And the scientists all understand, you know, here's what's going on. Uh, it is it is very bad, we're headed on this course, we're just trying to decide how much, you know, how bad it's gonna be, um, but we know exactly, you know, humans are having an effect on the climate in this way. Um, and it's such a disconnect. And so, and I think everyone, it's easy, like everyone kind of blames, you know, isn't sure who to blame, but if you write about science for the public, you have to think like, is this my fault, did I do something wrong, did I explain something wrong? Um, And a lot of it is that there's been, you know, there there, there are lots of um, business and political political groups who have an interest in making this confusing. It's like with cigarettes and smoking, um, where there's, you know, kind of misinformation, but also people who just have an incentive to kind of muddy the waters. Mm -hmm. And so I think that scientists, sometimes people will blame scientists or scientists will blame themselves. um, And it's not their fault. It's not their job to explain things to the public, you know. Um, Like, it's nice if they can. But... Sci- it's like with, with everyone, everything else, scientists are busy, you know? They, yeah. it's, they, they don't necessarily, you know, need to need to explain things to the public, but, but um, so what I've, I've felt like I try to, I've tried to do is I don't just get up and say, I want to tell people what they should think about this, because I think that's not a healthy way to go about it, and it can be hard to be funny if you're feeling like you're telling people what to think. <laughs> um, and so I, I, don't, I don't try to do that every day. But what I try to do is I wait until I have something to say mm-hmm. that I think is is a point that people don't notice but it's really important and I have a way and and I feel like there's a I have an idea for how to get it across that fills a gap, you know. Yeah. And I have something to say that isn't being said that's unusual, you know, that's and that I think could make a difference. Um and then I'll try to very, you know, think about how do I get that across. Yeah
2: but it seems very interesting and, and important what you said earlier that that there's um uh, that, that you sort of try have to think about how can you Get something across that is not that comes not across in a condescending way, and to just sort of assume people are smart, but that they're busy and can't just know everything, and that, that, that you need to provide context. For instance, we very much like the, the 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 extremely long timeline of Earth's temperature, and there it's again it's very funny and nice how you play with the browser, and that it's like it's mm-hmm. like scrolling down forever until you know the punchline yeah. is there, and it's like it's it's this really cool thing because it's it's a nice experience <laughs> to just look at it and scroll and scroll and scroll. Um, and then in the end, the jaw sort of drops and you're like, oh my God. Um, but also it's this nice way of putting it because it's not, you know, it's not too, it is a serious thing, but you know, it's still, it's still a nice way to put it.
0: Yeah, it was, it was that's something where I, I found that data set and I've, I would hear people saying, um, uh, you know, well, the climate has changed before, so it's changing again, but, you know, this is normal. And and we don't know everything about what happened in the past, but when they say the climate has changed before, what bothered me was that they, they are talking about changes that were very different from what's happening now, and changes that were very dramatic. Um, now, in um, um, where I live uh, uh, 20,000 years ago in Boston, Boston was under over a kilometer of ice, mm-hmm. and the climate was you know, five degrees colder than it is now. And, and I just think that's helpful context when we talk about how the climate has changed before. One, it changed very slowly, and we're doing a change like that very quickly. And two, um, and you know maybe it did have quick changes that we don't know about that were smaller, but the changes that they are talking about when people say the climate has changed before, the ones we know about, those were slow. And the end, those changes were really big, in 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 a subjective sense. You know, the we had a mile, a mile you know a mile of ice over cities, and now it's you know farmland. And so I, it isn't reassuring to say the climate has changed before. Mm-hmm. And so I found these data sets, and I said, you know, I'm amazed that it's so little temperature change. You know, there are some other things that change too about the Earth's orbit, but you know that the that the such a small temperature change, and so so slow in a geologic sense uh, uh, happened in the past and then now we're having that same size change but in a very short time mm-hmm. and I wanted to figure out how do you get across those different time scales to mm-hmm. people Yeah. Um, and so I I thought about that one for like it was like two years on and off trying to figure out how can I show this to people in a way that will get across to them what impresses me so much about it
3: mm-hmm.
0: and and I finally you know and and then I and it, and I did this this comic, and you know, it, actually drawing it didn't take very long. But I talked to a couple of 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 the the world's top climate scientists about mm. that because I wanted to make sure everything I put in there I could stand behind. You know, and that's something where it's it's a really difficult you know editorial decision uh, how to how to show something, what context you have to leave in, and what context to leave out, and what to you know. Balancing, making it simple and making it correct is really a challenge for everyone. And so, when it's something that where I'm making as strong a statement as that, and you know, something that's over a politically contentious subject, I really want to want to get it right. And I, you know, and and then people will argue over whether that was the best way to do it or not. But like, mm-hmm. I I spent a long time on that, just making sure every line I drew in there, I can justify. I have my reason why I did it that way. You know. I think it's right. And um, even if no one, most people don't even notice that or care, if someone wanted to argue with me over it, you know, uh, I wanted it to be something I could stand behind.
1: Yeah. But I think that that's so quintessential to your work is like you do the work, you actually put in a lot of work into the research, right? And so that that sort of justifies also you making a statement. And then on the other hand, you you have this cartoonish stick figure, very approachable and simple drawing Mm -hmm. style, right? That's the exact opposite, I would say, like, in terms of visual jargon of down-talking. It's like, yeah, it's like, not, not to offend, but it looks like, well, you don't have to be a cartoonist to draw this. I'm, hope I'm not terribly offending you, but it's, it looks like a very, like, normal way yeah. of drawing. No, let's no, say, it right? is. Yeah. It's... And then you give it a personal spin. And I think this, this combination is so, so magical, like, on the one hand, really being, like, putting in the work, but then also being approachable and humble in, in the whole approach.
0: Oh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Um... Yeah, I think uh, I think a lot of the time, people who talk about science, um, there's a big kind of a role that like insecurity plays. Um, that that if you do a degree in science, you spend a lot of time under pressure to make sh- make sure that you don't that you fit in and that you don't uh, reveal that you don't understand something. You know, and so people are are very very nervous about admitting uh, about admitting that they don't understand something mm-hmm. and. So it may but it makes them tend to I think use more scientific terms that they where they they don't need to or they they use more um just when they're trying to prove that they understand something right. um, but that can get in the way of of speaking clearly uh, um, sometimes the terms are necessary or important, and sometimes you know it's important to to get certain details right, but then other times I think people will get too fixated on um, not asking silly questions or not you know using simple terms for things because they're worried that it will make them look like they don't know what they're talking about. And so people will be very pedantic and jump on each other over that kind of thing. And and I try not to do that, even mm-hmm. though, you know, I had that same background and I have those same impulses, yep. you know.
2: Yeah. yeah, that's certainly good. Um, Right, we want to wrap up with one very important question. One piece that we all really love is um, the uh, map projections piece. And what do they tell you about you? And we want to ask, what is your map projection? What does that tell us about you?
0: Um, so I, I did this chart of all these different projections. And, and, and I love this problem because it's like this fundamentally unsolvable problem <laughs> of how do you draw a spherical map on a flat surface? Um, And it's something where where no one solution is clearly optimal. Um, And that means that there are a whole bunch of different ones that sort of compete. Um, And the, the... the different projections work different, you know, have different benefits and different problems. Um, And so I had fun going over them and judging people, uh, uh, you know, for, 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 (laughs) like, try to think, well, if you like this projection, what does it say about you? Um, And I included a few obscure ones. There's a very pretty one, uh, the the Waterman butterfly projection, (laughs) which is similar, and you can buy a really nice poster of this. And it's similar to another one by this guy, uh, I think Cahill Bernard, Uh, someone named Cahill in the early 20th century. Mm -hmm. But um, and that one's really pretty, and I like that because the guy who made it—it it turns out—is it just has a website, you know, and people could go buy it. And so when I did this comic, he got a lot of attention. It's like, oh, this is the obscure map projection that XKCD <laughs> nice. liked. Um, I I when I drew my um, maps the in in how to um, the maps uh, in that have there there are maybe five or five or six places I forget where I drew maps, and the one that I use there. Is a projection, and I think it's called the, um, it, it goes by a couple of different names, but it's like the equidistant azimuthal projection. Um, but it's a projection where you have two different points that you choose. And then, and you choose those two points, and then every part of the map is shown the correct distance away from both of those points. Mm-hmm. And so the area right around the two points and the area between the two points will be roughly. Correct in both size and direction and then the the other side of the earth the and then away and the path So it's like you pick a path on the surface and that path and the area around it are roughly correct And then the stuff that's farthest from that path is the most distorted and so when I wanted to show butterflies migrating from Europe to uh, Central Africa I had a map showing this <laughs> and so I picked a proje- version of this projection that had the two points in Europe and in Central Africa And it showed those two continents, you know C- roughly correct, um, and I use that one. You know, and most of the time it'll look pretty similar to other projections up close. Um, but I spend a lot of time deciding which to use. There is there is a projection, and I'll leave this because this is something I would like the internet to help with. Um, there is a 3 point, uh, uh, three point equidistant. Um, I forget the name exactly, but there's a version of this projection that I'm describing that has three points. And I could not find a web I wanted to find a software tool that would let me plot those three points <laughs> um, and I spent like two days while I was writing this, trying to get this JavaScript uh, tool working mm-hmm. to to make it so that I could drag these points around <laughs> and draw new versions of the map that I could then you know copy for my comics and I couldn't find one uh, it's and I think three point equidistant is the the nice. name um. And I couldn't find a tool that would let me drag those and generate those on a screen uh and so, but I'm still looking for one, and I might build one, but that was where I realized I'm coming up with a complicated solution here. I need to stop this it's getting too complicated. I need to just write my book, and that's always the problem I run into i
2: see but so the personality of the of the projection would something it would be something like you know uh, trying to fit it into the this specific situation that yeah you i think, have I think tackle. it's that
0: that we like thinking about which one is best. But like if you look at enough different projections and enough in places, you understand that there's no best projection. There's just the best projection for the thing that you want to show to people, mm-hmm. you know? Um but but so I think that when we're just talking about general world maps, I think that there are the the ones that the like the National Geographic Society chooses the international there's the and the the Winkle Triple projection is a good one. Um and there are a few others. But I think it's like but it's still it depends on what you want to show in what ways yeah. so i like finding the right projection for a specific task
2: i see but sometimes
0: yeah. to a fault sometimes you don't need to spend days trying to get this one projection working you should just use a they're going to look the same anyway you're if i'm <laughs> i'm hand drawing them so like they're not going to be perfect
2: yeah. but we really love the idea that you know visualization types or chart types or projection mm-hmm. types sort of have a personality and you can sort of yeah. uh, judge people in that
1: yeah I'm just hoping Philippe Rivière is listening to this and will come up with a observable notebook with your three points in a couple of days like uh crossing that would my fingers great. here sure
0: <laughs> yeah yeah well and it, because what I love is that those decisions you know you see the map and you're like this map you know this is just what the world looks like but if you know about projections you look at it and you think someone in an office or someone at a table had to make a decision about what projection to use. Mm. What does this tell us about that person? And it's like a little bit of communication with the person who's behind the work. And I feel that way when I look at any kind of scientific paper or chart. Mm And I think like someone made this decision, and I can mm-hmm. see a little bit about the person by how they made it. Yeah, uh, and I like that kind of human connection.
2: Yeah, it's a funny way to look at it because uh, in in data visualization and also like on the podcast, for instance, uh, like the decisions you take on your way to the finalized visualizations are are an important step and something that we've talked about a lot. So I like mm-hmm. the idea of like looking behind the decisions and seeing like what the personality is behind it. Okay. I think uh we're wrapping this up here. And uh thanks so much for joining us, Randall. It's no, thank been you so uh, much, a hey, it's great wonderful. pleasure to I could, hear about it.
0: I could I, I always love talking about it, especially this kind of visualization stuff. Uh <laughs> awesome, it's so Ian. cool. So thank you so much for having me on.
2: You're more than welcome. And yeah, we've we've been very happy to hear about yeah, how you tweak and work with uh with the visualizations and uh, <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah, well thank you. Thank you, Randall. That was fantastic, really. Thank you. Thank All right, you. Bye-bye. <laughs> bye bye. Bye. Hey, folks! Thanks for listening to Data Stories again. Before you leave, a few last notes: This show is crowdfunded, and you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com/datastories, where we publish monthly previews of upcoming episodes for our supporters. Or you can
3: also send us a one-time donation via PayPal at paypal.me/datastories. Or, as a free way to support the show, if you can spend a couple of minutes reading us on iTunes, that would be very helpful as well. And here's some information on the many ways you can get news directly from us. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, so follow us there for the latest updates. We have also a Slack channel where you can chat with us directly. And to sign up, go to our own page at datastory.es, and there you'll find a button at the bottom of the page. And there you
1: can also subscribe to our email newsletter if you want to get news directly into your inbox and be
3: notified whenever we publish a new episode. That's right. And we love to get in touch with our listeners. So let us know if you want to suggest a way to improve the show or know any amazing people you want us to invite or even have any project you want us to talk about.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Don't hesitate to get in touch. Just send us an email at mail at
3: datastory.es. That's all for now. See you next time, and thanks for listening to Data Stories.